0: Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of stinky, and for a bigger jobs, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. Hello, and welcome to the Game Maker's Notebook. I'm Robin Hunneke, your host for these indie interviews at DICE 2019 in Las Vegas, baby. So today, we have Justin Ma of Subset Games. We're going to be talking with him about a variety of things, but I think what I would say we talked about most is ways of staying connected To yourself and to the world while working on an innovative game that lets you stay chill and Zen while also helping you find the fun in systems. Justin is a fantastic designer, works very very closely with Matthew Davis on these games and it was a real pleasure to talk to him about his total process and of course Into the Breach which is nominated for an award tonight. So by the time you hear this you'll know if he won but in my book He's a total winner. Here he is.
1: Welcome to the Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in depth one on one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment.
0: How many times have you been to Vegas now?
1: Uh, This is my second time here.
0: Okay, so this is your second time here. And the last time you were here was pretty much for the same reason, right?
1: nope we were just passing through on a road trip actually Ah. also for one night so this will be my second night
0: second night in (laughs) vegas okay so um bringing yourself to vegas is a it's a it's an interesting experience Mm. getting here and then you get here and then you're in vegas as game designer how does it feel to be in vegas
1: um, I feel like they could design the user experience of this hotel a little bit better. <laughs> I got lost maybe twice on the way down here, but uh, that aside, uh, Vegas is a little bit intense for me. Yeah. It's a little bit opulent and overwhelming, and so I uh, I, haven't really attempted to spend a great deal of time here, let's say.
0: I've had the same experience. Um Before we get into too much detail about everything else that is Vegas and Dice and everything, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Why don't you give a little introduction? I could try to summarize the greatness that is you, but I think it's better if you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you got to be sitting here in this um, fabulous hotel room in Vegas.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So once again, my name is Justin Ma. I am half of Subset Games. We're an indie studio. We've released two games so far. Uh, The most recent one last year was called Into the Breach, a minimalistic tactics game. And our first game was called FTL Faster Than Light. And it was primarily made by Matthew Davis and myself, although we had a bunch of great contractors to help us for both of these games. But um, we split off from 2K Games Shanghai Studio in 2010. Yeah, And then we started working on a small prototype, which would become FTL. And we kind of weren't expecting to make it a commercial product, but because it got such positive reception, we decided to try and release it as a full game. And it did so well that we are able to continue making games and able to spend way too much time on Into the Breach.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How long did you spend on Into the Breach?
1: uh, It was about four years um, with Two and a half years, maybe, of the game being completely in flux, just constantly throwing out stuff, and it was three years or so before we even announced it, we just sort of did it all in secret because we didn't want to, you know, have people have the wrong expectations or something like that, Um, and then once we decided all right we figured out what the game is it was like a year and a half to like just finish all the content and push it out
0: so this is something that i've been thinking about a lot lately both both of the things that you just said the first one is that you were you were working somewhere and you decided to go off on your own and just make a prototype and see where it led right you were just following your bliss so you probably saved up a little money you were ready to like take the leap into the void of any development from a paid job. Mm. Did you work nights and weekends before you started like really trying to work together as a team? Had you done a game jam together? You worked together on, on the floor. Were Mm. you in Shanghai? Like how did you, how did you two decide to take this journey together?
1: So we both worked on the same project, Top Spin 3 on the Wii and during that time, we played a lot of board games together, so we we discussed design all the time. And we just both, coincidentally, were planning to leave China around the same time. And so we decided to spend a year just working on prototypes for fun. Matt wanted to work on his own code base for the first time, and I you know, loved just designing stuff. And um, we just found out that we worked very well together like i said this at this point, we weren't actually trying to dive into indie game development. We were just planning on making prototypes and just having fun, but luckily, uh, the cost of living in China is exceptionally low yeah, uh we just eating you know spending five dollars on food a day is like <laughs> that's the cost of living and my my wife was largely supporting us otherwise during that time, but um. Honestly, there wasn't too much pressure to make something great. We were just literally trying to make something for ourselves, uh, something that we wanted to play. And then when we found out how many people were interested in it, we pushed harder and tried to actually make a a game out of it rather than our own little masochistic experience (laughs) that we were making.
0: (laughs) This idea, though, that you could, like, begin without an attachment to the ending, right, Mm. is I think that's a skill, you know, I think that's, it's rare um, and I think it's something that game designers have uh, a lot of the time. They have an access to this idea of like, I'm just going to start building something and see where it goes. It's kind of like you're sculpting the experience or kind of chipping away at it to see where where the thing of beauty is in a system. This is something that like is I find in a lot of game designers. Um, have you had this attitude before? Had you done this practice before where you were just like free form experimentation as a way, sort of as a way of life, like deciding Mm. to dedicate that kind of time to it? Or was it something that you had aspired to or did it just strike you suddenly out of the blue?
1: I guess that's maybe generally how we approach approach most important decisions. Like my wife and I moved to China kind of without a plan we just had a three month visa and we're like, all right, let's see if we can get jobs during (laughs) that time. Um, or get a longer visa. But with game design, it maybe I have a healthy respect for how difficult it is that I won't ever assume any idea I have will work. So it's always a very heavy iterative process of this idea sounds cool, but you won't actually know it until you try it. And through the trying of it is generally how we find the interesting. Sort of mechanics and gameplay that we would have never pictured with both of these games when we started out like we we had a end goal of an experience and a feeling that we wanted to convey, but we didn't have clear mechanics in mind, and figuring out what was fun was maybe the most challenging part, but it was the things that were the most interesting elements of the game were definitely found as we went along, such as like crew manipulation is fun in f t l and having enemies with cued attacks is interesting into the breach.
0: Yeah. And so when you're in the process of iterating to success, you're really looking at, okay, let's try a system. Let's put something in place. And then we'll fiddle with it a little bit. And then what about it is interesting, right? It's like Mm. you're chasing that feeling of interesting or novel. Your games typically are very strategic. Mm. You're thinking about trying to manage multiple things in the face of chaos I guess is would be the way to put it right Sure yeah and um and that feeling of 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 cleverness that comes from sort of chaining up the right events or making the right decisions in a row right yep. that's a specific kind of fun did you have a vocabulary for talking about that did you develop like a did you use board game mechanics mm. as reference for that or is there like a do you have an internal way of, like, a vocabulary for your for your designs, or do you lean on other games? Where does that language come from for you in working on these?
1: I think it's a cross between Matt and my general interest in games. Um, the things I enjoy the most is when I have the opportunity to express myself and discover things. That the game designer maybe didn't intend, or mm-hmm. even if they intended, it doesn't feel that way. So rather than just conquering a set series of challenges, I like being able to explore intersecting mechanics and see what results from them. And so, for example, the reason why we like making these games and these types of games so so much is because even we keep getting aha moments when playing our our own games. So there'll be multiple, countless times in the development of Into the Breach, for example, where we would find a new way to interact with our own units or weapons or enemies that had an interesting cascading of effect and that sort of high of discovering a new way these systems work together is definitely one of my favorite parts about development so we generally strive to make games that way and i think just because we're trying to make games that we ourselves are interested in that that it just that sort of thing naturally just becomes a goal
0: I think this is a really interesting aspect of game design that uh, like any game designer would understand, but it's often really difficult to communicate, say, to a publisher Mm. or someone that you're hoping will fund your game Mm. and possibly even to an audience. Like if you say, our games really help you have that feeling of high Mm. when you've discovered something unexpected in a system, right? That's not typically how marketing copy (laughs) reads for a game, but it is an experience that that any gamer will understand, right? Sure. Like anyone who loves The Sims or Roller Coaster Tycoon or um, any strategy game, when they start to play with the system, SimCity, any of these things, right? They know that feeling of like, it's a cool simulation game or it's a cool tactical strategy game or it's a cool systems-based game. Um, but it's very difficult sometimes to describe it. like. It, you know did you did you talk about trying to communicate it to players? It sounds like you just put it out there <laughs> to see if people would like it, and then they liked it. And you were surprised, but like how did that how did you evolve that once once you thought, okay, it's gonna have to become a real game
1: uh, luckily, uh, we haven't had to deal with that experience of trying to com- communicate why our idea for our game will be good um with people. Maybe the closest was the. FTL Kickstarter, but even during that, we just gave people the demo. Yeah, um, and I guess I wouldn't even know where to begin to try and <laughs> <laughs> to try and convince people that it's a good idea, other than to put something in front of them. Um, so, in general, it's we don't have to think that way. Like we we didn't announce into the breach for a really long time because we were certain any way that we tried to convince people that this was interesting uh, would sort of breed, I don't know, inconsistent expectations about what that game would be. Some people would be picturing something slightly different and than what it would be. And so uh, I don't know how I would be able to share the sort of dream vision that we have for the game because our vision for the game means that the gameplay can be highly different depending on what we find enjoyable. Meaning. Uh, are we're aiming for a certain experience and the gameplay that evokes that experience doesn't really necessarily matter as long as it's good. Yeah. So with FTL, you know, we wanted the feeling of being a captain, but that could mean a captain of a fleet, it could mean a captain of a ship, it could mean you're dealing with morale and food and no enemies. So it could be any number of things as long as we convey that that feeling and atmosphere. So... And because we're pretty agile with our development, we don't generally stay too attached to most design elements. We can just sort of cut it if need be. Um, So we don't like to commit ourselves to something that we're not certain – commit ourselves in the eyes of others to something that we're not certain will work out in the end. This
0: is a really unique uh, situation to be in, right? Mm. Like it's it's sort of what I think a lot of people consider to be quintessentially indie Mm. is that you can – for some reason, take some time off. Um, like, super thanks to your wife for supporting you guys. Yeah, of course. <laughs> because oh, yeah. no both joke. FTL and Under the Breach are great games, and they're really well-loved. I mean, they're amazing games. And so yay to the lady that paid your bills while you were yeah, working both of on our, that both stuff. Yeah, both of our ladies. Yeah, both yeah. of your ladies. That's amazing. <laughs> but, like, not everybody has someone that can pay their bills. And so it really is, like, the causes and conditions have to be right such that you can focus on this feeling you want to create and then iterate towards it and that is it's so special and yet it's so rare Mm. and it's one of those situations that I think a lot of people actually when they're in school they really want to they really want to start making games and I always encourage them hey you know what you have nights and weekends probably at Mm. least two or three a week that you could be spending doing something really cool yeah you don't have to worry about having a full-time job right now. Now is the time to really iterate and to make a difference because you might end up with that little prototype that you can put in front of someone else.
1: Mm, yeah, I I would admit that we are in maybe the most fortunate of situations, especially after FTL, where we can take four years and not have to worry about uh, funding because, um, you know, we're a small team so we don't need that much money and we don't have high expenses but still, just to not have to worry about that is a very um, unique and fortunate situation that we're in. And I definitely encourage everyone to, to sort of explore as much as I can while they have the time to be able to do so. But I, generally these days, I, I have trouble recommending people to go indie per se because the market is kind of flooded feeling uh, in general. And and also, I've I've seen a lot of people who don't take well to the working on your own from your house sort of lifestyle.
0: Yeah, that's something that comes up a lot yeah. with, within the indie community. Um, <laughs> I've heard it affectionately referred to as the malaise, mm. <laughs> you know, the, the sort of feeling of isolation, um, attaching a lot of your value to this outcome that is totally insecure, that you you could work really passionately on a game that's lovely, and then Accidentally release it the same week that something else comes out that's yeah. huge. You could you could accidentally release something that there's something else just like it that comes out the next week that slightly has better visibility and get crushed. Yeah. It's a really competitive marketplace, right?
1: Or a Windows update that crashes everything. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. it's hard um, to. It is very volatile, and even you know, with us going into with into the breach, we had you know zero guarantees and no. We tried to keep our expectations just absurdly low for, um, not making any assumptions about how well it could possibly do. So, you have to go in with the right mindset to not drive yourself crazy. I think.
0: Yeah, what are some of the techniques that you use when you do start yourself feeling, start to feel yourself getting a little stir crazy?
1: I do all right working from home in general. Uh, it doesn't bother me. I mean, even my wife who's now working from home, it seems to bother her more. I think part of the benefit is that I can have interactions with people online and still feel like that is actually a communication method, yeah. where for some people that doesn't. Um, and we don't even use like you know Skype meetings that often. It's just pretty much text and Slack and stuff. But even I, I would probably say that I, I just try and meet up with friends as much as possible outside and go out often to go out to eat or, or take we take classes together and stuff like that. Just general trying not to make this the only aspect of my my life. Yeah. And my wife is also really good at that and making sure that it is not the only thing that I'm focusing on at any given time. Yeah, um, So I think that would be very critical because not only is that just unhealthy, it probably doesn't breed a very productive development environment to be just completely focused on this thing without any other outlets or without any other perspectives.
0: When you're getting stuck, like let's say you're working on something and you know it's not working, do you generally just chuck it and think about something completely different? Or are you the kind of person that sort of branches from an idea to an iteration of that idea and, and, and tries to take it in a different direction?
1: I think... Um, Matt and my sort of dynamic is that Matt is a bit higher level generally. He'll be the one who says after a month I don't think this is working Hmm. just randomly in one day and then I'll be like okay here we go again. Let's, (laughs) Let's like scratch all that and try again. And I'll generally be the one who is trying to say "All right, if this is the direction that we're going in what mechanics would need to emerge for this to be interesting so I'll just try and hash out random garbage ideas and and write, you know, weapons tables or whatever to try and come up with something to find a way to make this interesting. Um, so if I'm particularly stuck in an idea, I honestly find that I get the most design work done during yoga, for example. Really? When, not, yeah, when I'm not at in front of a desk and I can just passively let my brain sort of mull over subconsciously and then I can often come out of that with more clear ideas of what I want to do rather than being sort of stuck in the design loops that I get caught in.
0: I have the same process, and I think I, you know this is something I've talked to a lot of developers about. For me, it's usually cooking or gardening. Mm. I really love doing both those activities when the weather is permitting or whether my schedule permits, and it's because I'm – Yeah, I'm using my body, or like riding a bike is another one that's really great Mm. for me. Uh, Using my body to do something that is, it feels like I'm making some kind of progress on it, but I don't have to think about it too hard. The equivalent of knitting, you know? Mm. Um, And it is in those moments where it just sort of appears in your mind, you know? It gives you that chance to to be disconnected from the outcome.
1: Yeah, very true. I also just... Uh, I find it easier to focus on a design puzzle when my body is being occupied by something else, such as walking or, or physical activity through yoga or jogging yeah. or something.
0: When you finished FTL and it started getting all the critical reception and started blowing up basically, <laughs> um, did you did you sit down and have a conversation like as subset games? Like, okay, well, this is going to mm. make subset it's going to give you the opportunity. You could hire more people or work with more contractors. Like, did you have a, did you have a conversation about your values and like what you wanted to do as creatives uh, in the broader community? Like, how has it affected like your perception of yourself? It's like, okay, well, you know, Matt and I are just friends and we're hanging out making prototypes. Oops. Now we made a game. Mm. Whoa. Now we, now we're like, people know about us. Like if I go to a GDC, people people are talking to me.
1: Um, We definitely talk about those sorts of things, but again, fortunately, Matt and I generally align in our sort of values in that regard. Like we aren't, trying to build a large studio, we have no desire to switch to managing, you know, 10, 15 people or oh, something. Oh, but why but, not?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, It'd be so fun.
1: <laughs> uh, it's not It's not where my interests lie, let's say. <laughs> I, I found, we, we've dabbled in management stuff, and I found I'm not particularly good at it. <laughs> and I'm sure it's a skill that we could gradually get better at, but...
0: You can uh, always hire it.
1: It's true. Um, I think we we just really like being able to have our hand in absolutely anything and I have the tendency where even after any of the breach I kind of just want to go smaller I just want (laughs) to just make a smaller game with just what Matt and I can do and just try and shoot these things out like crazy I don't think that's what we would do next but like that's like my feeling after that um
0: can we talk about the feeling after like you finish a game and then it comes out and it does however it's going to do and then there's that period after while you're kind of walking around soaking it up, talking to people and traveling. And then there there's always that period where you're like, okay, now what? should uh, probably settle down and hmm. start again.
1: Like we um we didn't have too much pressure, time pressure in that regard. Yeah. Like after FTL we kind of burnt ourselves out. Uh Matt especially after the release of you know three platforms simultaneously, which I do not encourage small teams to do. <laughs> yeah that's, that's um, <laughs> Yeah, he he was like, I don't really know if I want to make games anymore. Yeah. This is a this is too intense, uh, and so we we very calmly just did our own stuff, traveled, Matt moved, I moved, um, we took our time a bit, and then we were gradually working on s- small prototypes because that's just naturally what we find interesting in our free time. We just <laughs> started working on stuff again, and eventually we were we were starting to work on another... Matt was starting to work on a small prototype that he wanted my help or input on. And we just gradually worked on it more and more without trying to put that pressure of this has to be our next game because we were trying to capture... We Very consciously, we trying to recreate how FTL was made, which is just us making something that we want to play ourselves. Yeah. Uh, and so we tried our best to maintain that Uh, sort of perspective, rather than trying to say, what's our next big thing, you know, we need to top it, we need to beat, you know, uh, beat its popular, FTL's popularity or something like that. So that period, um, we were trying our best not to be overwhelmed by that feeling, the general sophomoric feelings of how do you, you know, top something that did very well, you know, stuff like that, that we were actively trying to resist.
0: And did you have a different process in terms of like you say that, you know, Matt kind of burnt himself out, like you decided, okay, this time we're not going to do three platforms at once. (laughs) Yes. uh, (laughs) This time we'll maybe work with some contractors. What was the difference between those two processes?
1: um, We we both decided not to crunch essentially and not have it be our, like the only thing we do in our lives. Matt um, had two children during the development of... Yeah, during the development of Into the Breach. So like we basically did not work as uh many hours as we did for FTL. Uh or at least we tried not to. <laughs> um, yeah, in, in general, we just tried to remove as much pressure as possible um from ourselves. Like we d tried not to put too much pressure on each other. Uh, over the expectations of the game, um, and also just on the day-to-day expectations of working together as a team, we try to just keep it very light, um, and just f- focus on what is actually enjoyable about this process. Although that's hard after two years of struggling to even get a game to work at all. So, um,
0: what makes it hard? I think is it that is it that you feel? I mean, I, I certainly have this feeling sometimes when I look at a game that's what I would call ugly, you know, Mm. the mechanics are ugly. They're not really hanging together or the, you know, the experience doesn't communicate the vision in my head or the vision that people have expressed to me. When you look at a game like that, for me, I feel kind of, I feel frustrated and sad Mm. that, that it's like, it's almost like you wish you could, you could just will <laughs> just, just will the jump computer jump 6 months later yeah, like, like oh, do what you want or well, yeah, how like, do we solve this Yeah, just, just like, do it already get it, get get over the hump for me it is a lot of times it's like i know that there's something missing but i'm not sure what it is or i'm pretty sure something's there that shouldn't be there but like being able to see it is hard that that feeling of it of of like we're not making it but you know that you're going somewhere. Mm. Like it's such a it's such a strange experience when you're there, do you just let it be? Like a lot of what you're talking about is removing pressure, mm. but then that there is this inherent pressure over time where you're like, "Okay, it's been 2 years." Yeah. I, maybe we should know what it is now.
1: Yeah, there's maybe 3 or 4 times that we basically dropped 6 months of work. And exactly as you're describing, it's just the Frustration of knowing that there's something interesting here and you're just not sure where it is or where to focus on or you're not even sure if there is something to be found, even if you were to spend years and years on it. So (laughs) it's just the uncertainty. Um, It's like simultaneously strong confidence and huge uncertainty and you're not certain where you are at any point, you're constantly flipping between those two. Yeah. In general, I'm the more optimistic one. Matt's more pessimistic. I tend uh, to be optimistic <laughs> as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the one who's like, there's something here. Don't worry, we'll figure it out. <laughs> but, but yeah, after like the third time of dropping and going back to the drawing board, um, you do start to consider, all right, when do we just cut our losses? Yeah. yeah when do we just move on and try something else? Um, we are also stubborn, so we didn't do that <laughs> and thankfully we we pushed through at the end but but as you go on i feel like your priorities shift your your expectations lower mm-hmm. and you're more willing to hmm. just say all right well let's just ship something yes. <laughs> whatever is good about this let's just focus on that and just ship it um if, yeah we we felt like we were making two bad games and just pick one of them and make that okay game and then (laughs) just move on.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I was literally just having this conversation with someone today where I was like, you know, I think what you see in this build when you look at it genuinely, when you look at it is there's so much more promise in it this month than there was last month. Mm. But it's still, to me, it feels like it's just really rough. There's like roughness in it. There's a lack of It's just the juiciness is like a little too – it's dry. It's a little Mm. dry here and it's like a little rough here. And like the metaphors I tend to use when I'm describing experiences, I think predominantly because of the types of experiences that I design – um, and collaborate on are really, they tend to be very narrative and very immersive and about creating feels inside your body. Sure. And so when, I, when I'm when i experiencing something and I, it starts to give me tingles, like mm. I'm like, ooh, I got to chill from that opening scene or, oh, wow, that that voiceover is really beautiful. Um, I know we're going somewhere. And then it's just like when there's, there could only be so much of that in, a, in an in-progress build, right? So you get to the point where you're like, oh, there's like a moment that takes your breath away and then everything else around it Mm. Is not breathtaking, right? And that's to me, it's like that's where the sadness comes, but the stubbornness is totally there as well. You're like, well, if we can do it for one minute, we can do it for two, and if we can do it for two, we can probably do it for ten. And then when you get to around ten minutes of like, ooh, this is a new feeling, I like this. That's when I'm like, yeah, this is we're gonna get there, right? Like when I can see a solid ten minutes of that. Sure, but it it can be very long time. Sure, yeah. Before you get to that solid ten minutes.
1: Yeah. Plus also just trying to sort of picture what it is to experience for the first time and being able to keep your objective brain on is very, very hard when you've been staring at this thing for years on end. And it's very hard to to even know that what you're feeling is what players will feel. Yeah. Like you're not certain because because you're so invested in this project and invested in the idea and the world that it's really hard to to design for players when you can basically only design for yourself, at least in my case.
0: Well, and this is why, like, I think the both of us have tried to work on games we would want to play, that we would want to see made in the world. In a way, I think I, I have worked in the past on games that I didn't necessarily design, you know, like I sure. didn't design boom blocks, <laughs> yeah. you know, Steven Spielberg came up with the idea for that game and then a bunch of people helped him make it and then I went on to it as like a junior producer and working on it and and then continuing to work on the franchise, I think it became something that I loved, Sure, but I, it didn't come for me mm. and, you know, even Journey for, for a lot of it like was... It didn't come from any one of us. It came from all of us collaboratively. Um, And so I've had the feeling of experiencing this like knowing, but not knowing, even about other people's games. Hmm. But it's easier to do it, I think, if you are a mirror of the player you're trying to serve, right? That's true. You know, it's like you can better play act.
1: Yeah. I don't think I would be able to design if I was saying, you know, here's my target audience, make a game for this person. I don't think... I'm not that good of an actor to be able to put myself in someone else's shoes in that way. It does sound like it would be challenging as well to have this sort, a larger team, and the sort of you know this compilation of everyone's expectations and views of what this game is, and then using that as a goalpost rather than just two people. Um, In that way, we're fortunate, and I definitely enjoy working in a small team. Although that does sound, it sounds like you can get something that's greater than the sum of the individual's Yeah. part, you know, their own perception of what the game is. You can get more out of it with a larger team, but, um, but it's work. It sounds hard.
0: (laughs) It's, I think it's hard either way. I mean, I think this is when you, you know, if you listen to lots of the designers who've been over, over time interviewed on this podcast, it's, it's interesting to think about this space as it's continuous. There's, there's ways to make games where you have a very concrete notion of who your target audience is and a license, and you're yeah. you're aiming that license at that audience, and you're like, you're going to love Spider-Man. Sure. <laughs> We're going to make the best Spider-Man game we can, right? And then there's this completely different thing, which is, hey, let's make a game where you feel like a captain. Mm, sure. Just you and me. Yeah. And like, let's just do this for a while and see if we can do it. Like those are the those are two very different spectrums, but they're are ends of they're they're the ends of a spectrum that is filled with opportunities and, and different ways of making. Which is why it's interesting to talk to different creators, right? Because, sure, yeah. because we exist. I in some ways, I think we design the system in which we can design. Right. Mm. Yours is about removing pressure. Yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> like keeping it chill. Yeah. And also being free to throw things away without guilt, Mm. you know, like, okay, we, we worked on this, but it didn't work out. Right. Yeah. And then having a life that's full so that when the game isn't going in a direction that you necessarily understand, you can still have confidence and have joy and have courage. Right.
1: Yeah. I, I do hear about some people who basically their own self image is entirely wrapped up in their work. And, um, we're actively trying to avoid that because that sounds like it's a dangerous I'm sure you can make amazing stuff with that, but it it feels like you're putting yourself on the line a bit too much for me i'm not there's too much at risk when you when you invest yourself emotionally t- too much into a game. Maybe I can only say that because I'm generally more naturally detached in that way and some people couldn't possibly um be detached but at least from my perspective that sounds like it would be a hard thing to handle success or not success or mediocre no matter what that sounds like a very stressful and a very intense experience to to put yourself out there that way well, and I i'm grateful for when people do because it usually results in amazing stuff well but, this you
0: know. is this is i think there's different ways of approaching Effectively, you know, computational art, you Mm, know, if you think of games as computational art or systems that react, interactive experiences, playful software, you know, there's, there's different ways to think of games, um, in the sense of computer games, the kinds of games we make, when you think about them this way, there's an objective approach. You can use your objective brain to really look at it as a system and think about the system and then watch the system simulate and behave and tweak that, and I love to play games like that. Sure. I don't necessarily design them, hmm. but I love to play them.
1: Yeah, and I should also clarify that I'm, when I say like I'm more detached that's in this spectrum, I'm I'm still obviously the guy who thinks about... <laughs> into the breach every day, all day, for years and years and years. But I guess I just meant more like emotionally, like uh, it could fail and I wouldn't be, you know, utterly devastated. devastated. (laughs) But yeah, the systematic (laughs) games are are definitely my jam, Um, and both as a player and as a developer, I just, I love that sense of discovery uh, that you can get in those sorts of games.
0: What was the the sort of core notion that you had for Into the Breach that you wanted to communicate with this game?
1: The um, the initial inspiration uh, came to Matt as um, a sort of reaction to media like the Superman movies where whole cities would get destroyed and no one would really mind. Mm-hmm. It was just sort of background noise. So he really wanted to make a game where defending the city was the highest priority. So the atmosphere that we really wanted to create was uh, the feeling of being willing to lose someone close to you to protect others, uh, and just to to lose your pilot to protect that structure. And in the end, we had to do it a little bit, sort of like bluntly, by just making the loss condition in the buildings itself. But it, it works at least to can to put you in that mindset um, when you're playing the game that we were sort of eventually, you know, hoping we'd come out.
0: It's interesting because both games have this sort of sense of leadership hmm. or some kind of, um, yeah, sense of self-sacrifice.
1: Yeah, them. it's a bleak view of leadership, I think. <laughs> it's it's the, the captain goes down with the ship form of leadership. Uh, yeah, but, it, I mean, maybe it's reflecting a general bleak out, outlook on on the world itself, but the uh, with Into the Breach, I... I very much enjoyed the feeling of your opponent um, sort of being ambivalent, meaning like your opponent is almost like, you know, a typhoon or something. Yeah, it's like it, an
0: unavoidable force. Yeah, and yeah. it's not
1: malevolent or it's not like strictly evil. It's just a thing doing its thing and you're trying to desperately survive, which I feel. Feel like grasps a lot of the feelings of humanity. Perhaps I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think this this idea of um, in our time right now, building games that reflect on the the awareness. That things are changing globally, like we're more connected than we ever have been before. Sure. You know, the earth is responding to our presence on it more now than ever before. Mm. We're spending more and more time trying to figure out how to communicate across cultures mm. and across time zones and across physical distances. There's a lot more pressure on humanity right now to figure out how to act as one, right? Yeah. To act as a unit.
1: Some, this may be in the realm of the death of the artist stuff, but... Someone was trying to sum up the worldview of Into the Breach in a way that I hadn't really thought of. Where essentially, you know, we we view that it is possible to save uh, the world and it is possible to save people, but there's just simply not enough time. And and I was like, hmm, I guess that that kind of is my world, my worldview in general. <laughs> like maybe that came out with a, by accident, but no, I thought that was interesting. Th-
0: this is an interesting thing because if you think about this conversation we were having earlier about designing a life that supports creativity, that allows you to live authentically, to be with your partner and your friends in a way that um still leaves room for exploration and creativity. Um, that's a really important thing to do in a time when so much else is beyond your control. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, it's a human response to the feeling of overwhelm or pressure that a lot of people feel. And I think one of the reasons your games resonate with younger people, especially is because they reflect this understanding that there is so much going on that we can not control. And it would be really nice to be able to figure out just how to save it at the last minute or how to, how to, how to just. Uh, avoid that one last bullet or that one last failure. You yeah. know? It's like it's true.
1: Hopefully our next game could just generally be, be a bit more optimistic, perhaps. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you were gonna make a really optimistic game, what would you focus on?
1: Gosh, I don't even know. Um I I haven't put that much thought into that. <laughs> Although the, the closest thinking I've done is maybe on Celeste, where I'm just like utterly amazed that a Challenging platformer can also just be so utterly positive and optimistic in yeah. in its tone and expression and so so that game maybe I'll take as an inspiration if I try and go down that path,
0: yeah, I think that's really that's a really good point. the surface difference between struggling and succeeding and um yeah, hope and challenge I think that's a really that's yeah a really good point. and personal
1: growth in general, it's just yeah. like. I guess my, my view of optimism is not that things will be easy. It's that things will be hard, but it'll be okay in the end.
0: You know, that's actually, um, I think that's very Zen. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a philosopher uh, practicing nun, Buddhist nun, Pema Jodron, who I listen to all the time. And she has a lot of philosophies that she's expressed around the notion of, um, of letting go mm. when things fall apart. Sure. And the, you know the idea that when things fall apart, uh, when you lose ground, when you don't know what to expect, when you're, as you said, stubbornly confident, mm. but also full of uncertainty, um, this is the moment when you're present in the moment mm. because you don't have an expectation about what's going to happen because you can't know, but you know that it's going to happen. Sure. <laughs> you're aware that something will t- something will happen, something will change, and being okay with that. And existing in that state mentally and emotionally allows you to avoid doing the wrong thing, mm. you know, and in in the case of humanity so often when we lose ground and we're in the space of not knowing our first reaction is to lash out and try mm. to get ground under us, blame someone else for what we're feeling or or, you know, act aggressively towards someone to get what we want because we feel like we're not getting it. We tend to act out uh, in those moments And become grasping or become controlling or become, you know, fixed on an idea that, well, this is good and this is bad. And the perception is that if you can not do that, just be in that moment and feel it, but then let it pass, it's exactly what you said. something will happen and it'll be a challenge, but it'll be okay. It'll
1: pass. Basically, um, allow yourself to not be attached to things, be it. A certain outcome or a certain desire or a certain feeling, and you just accept things as they happen. Um, yeah, that's definitely uh, a sort of perspective that I'm trying to work towards. Um, we've been uh, more exposed to this this type of uh, non attachment uh, Zen style Buddhism, I guess, in the recent past, and it's definitely something that I have found at least helps my personal anxieties to to sort of not get too hung up on outcomes in general and just accept the, the journey itself as the end goal, I guess. Um, yeah. and, but all that being said, it's a very challenging thing that you have to like constantly be checking yourself on uh, to, to not get stuck in those loops of uh, expectation or disappointment or hope. And, and all of this, of course is, is only possible when you have some sense of stability, <laughs> like meaning like you're not, you know, worried about getting fired or, or stuff like that. Yeah, which or where is, you're going to sleep. Yeah, no. So, so it's definitely a luxury that I can sort of try and set up my, my lifestyle in a way that is most uh, beneficial for my psyche. But even given that, opportunity it's It's still like a huge question of like what is the best way for us to work and still be productive and yeah. what is the best way to be creative but not have too much you know choices and get choice paralysis from a blank page and so I feel like a lot of being an indie perhaps is either subconsciously or actively learning about what it is that you need, um, to work and, and then setting up your life in a way that is able to, to sort of facilitate that. And I think the best studio heads and, you know, be it a small studio or a large studio, it's someone else is essentially doing that is, is figuring out what is it that this person needs to make them feel fulfilled and also be productive. And, um, I don't know if it would be easier or harder to do that for someone else or yourself, but it's generally a very challenging thing.
0: I think it's hard no matter whether you're doing it for yourself and someone else or just yourself, it's difficult because no matter what, it is a personal practice, right? Like learning Mm. to know thyself and especially as an artist and as a creator, you always have this tendency towards, okay, I know I'm getting stuck because I'm overloaded or I, I haven't Done any exercise, or yeah. I've been staring at this thing for, you know, five hours, and I still can't figure out how to make it run. Should probably stop staring at it. Now. Yeah. You know, you yeah. learn to, you learn Take to step away break. from the computer <laughs> and to just leave the code or leave leave the leave the program that you're working in and just and just let it go. Um, or in some cases, to just cut a feature or change the design doc. You know, move around or Mm -hmm. in a different direction because the place you're trying to get to, there's just a big wall there and you can't scheme scale it or blast through. And like knowing your capacity and your limits is a way of being kind to yourself in those situations, I think. And knowing that for your team, knowing that for the people that you're working with, if you are, if you're like doing some kind of co-development or creative development for someone else, being able to see their limits too is really important. I think it's, It's a question of knowing. And honestly, it's probably why working with one other person is so joyful in some ways for some people. And for other people, it's so intense, right? Like some people just only want to know enough to get what they're done Mm. doing, to get what they're doing done alongside everyone else so that everything can get done and be better than itself, right? Sure. Like that's that's a certain style. And other people really want to intimately understand a single person, collaborate with them. Work really closely with them and create a vision collaboratively that way over a long period of time. Do you, can you imagine ever working on a game for just six months and then shipping it?
1: Um, I can imagine in theory, like <laughs> like, like it sounds great, <laughs> but I'm sure in practice uh, our perfectionism would take over at some point yeah. and our lack of a publisher pushing a hard deadline. Um but I would I would love to be able to do that.
0: <laughs> would you think of working on a game for 10 years? Can you imagine working on something for 10 years before you released it?
1: Uh, no. I could theoretically picture sort of a games as service sort of system where it's just this is what I'm doing. But honestly... Four years even was enough to make me just completely sick of Into the Breach. where it's you know it's like I essentially got a degree in this game, right? <laughs> like that's you know I could have been not that I don't know which is better, but that's you know, a great way to put it. <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know I, I have a PhD in this one you know tiny little idea, but um, so I, I I sympathize with those other indies who are working even five seven years. I I, I can't picture it. Um, I had enough trouble maintaining objectivity after, you know, two, three years.
0: Did you do testing with other people? And when did you start to invite people in to see it?
1: Um Honestly, I, I, I don't even remember. <laughs> uh the we I know that uh, at least on my end, every so often, like every six months, there were a couple of people, like Nathan Vella and Brendan Chung, who we just like um and some other guys who were very graciously would check it out um every so often. And, you know, they would be like, I see where, where are you where you're going with this. I like the ideas. I'm like, got it, it's awful. <laughs> 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 I understand. <laughs> Moving on. Um, but and but after we after we settled on the sort of combat system that we liked, we definitely brought in a lot more people to test that, especially the user interface, uh, how to convey the information that we need to convey was a heavy priority. And that was one of our biggest challenges in development. And so that we had a lot of people helping. And then of course, close to release, we had um, an amazing group of uh, the small closed beta that these these uh, holdouts from our FTL days basically helped us uh, hash through the details of you know, pacing and challenge and and you know difficulty and interesting sort of engagements and stuff like that. So, um, in the early days, I would say we were mostly just relying on our own intuition. Mm-hmm. And gradually, as we got closer to a product, we brought in more and more people.
0: At that last stage, when you were tuning and designing at the same time, um, and you had this conversation going with your your hardcore fans. Um, did you get a piece of feedback that really transformed the experience or did you kind of was it more like a smooth landing?
1: Hmm. I think at that point we like the big questions were already resolved. Um there was I'm sure countless small questions that were totally shaped by that experience, but nothing comes to mind immediately. The the big turning point with into the breaches development was initially we were working on this huge metagame of like an XCOM style city builder oh, I love XCOM. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know, you're re you're repairing buildings and trying to protect this one city and sending out multiple squads and these, you know, we had all mm-hmm. these different elements and, and we eventually just said, okay, it's just going to be a combat game that you have a series of battles and then you're done. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the big turning point for like feeling, okay, this could be a game now. I see what the game is and it is manageable and it is something that we can finish.
0: That was when you were like, there's two games here. Let's just make the one Yeah, then- the,
1: the, the other game was the sort of city builder management system game that we struggled with for years. Um, and... Uh,
0: what was hard about it?
1: Well, it was that feeling of, I'm sure there's something here, but this is not working. And then so we would try something completely different and shift our priorities and it felt that same way. And so at some point, Matt, <laughs> I guess probably, I don't remember this point, but Matt probably was just like, you know, screw it. It's not it's not worth it. We we've been working on this for however long. Essentially, um it was long and uninteresting and we didn't know how to pace it. And uh, we had stuff like uh the FTL style text events where you have different choices based on your pilots and your mechs and your equipment and all that sort of stuff. But that didn't really fit the theme of, you know, if that fits perfectly with exploration and discovering things. It does not fit well with protecting and, you know, like you get a new event and it's just some other disaster. Basically, someone comes with a problem. And like, that's not...
0: Actually, that's management. Yeah. That's just just crisis management. Yeah. (laughs) Let's
1: make the game of the job that I don't want. Yeah. (laughs) That sounds like a bad idea if you put it that way. But
0: it's the truth, right? And like, it is really essential. This is that there's always this moment where you're like, okay, we really want to make a game with this feeling of X. And then we made this thing because we thought, well, X implies Y and Z, and Y and Z are actually like their own game. Yeah. They're totally different. The feeling of doing them, like I've had multiple developments where this has been the case. And when you look at it later after you finish the game, it's so obvious (laughs) that this thing was not going to help. But when you're designing it on paper or yeah. you're having the whiteboarding session or you're chatting, it just seems like, oh yeah, we'll just put in a management sim and you'll have guys that you deploy to the city to fix the buildings <laughs> between levels and yeah. and there'll be da-da-da, like a little story about your city getting better or worse and it'll feel
1: cool. I think getting outside yeah. viewpoints is critical um, for this specific problem because um I mean I I also think it's dangerous to get uh help from other developers and get their opinions especially people who know you because they will sort of assume that you'll be able to solve this eventually and and so they they won't point out the biggest problems yeah. often cuz they're just like I see where you're going with this like I was saying I see what you're trying to do, it's not working right now. But maybe you can do. Maybe, you so, can maybe eventually you can pull it off. Whereas if you just get um, a sort of normal player um, who isn't ver- as versed in game design, they'll just say, you know, this isn't fun or this isn't working. And that both have their challenges on how to read and interpret this as useful information. But that's maybe more critical for the the bigger picture stuff that you're you're certain there's something there, but. It, if you if people can't just if the players can't see it or can't enjoy it then then it, that's a huge red flag yeah um that maybe you should be reconsidering the priorities
0: one of the things that i think is always interesting to me is the feeling of engaging new players and people who are effectively underexposed to games, Um, and especially like immersive games, for example, VR games or AR games, or just experiences in general in VR and AR. And I've done a lot of playtesting with people that are not designers Mm. and also not really quote unquote gamers. And one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is how so many people would really be just mesmerized by modern video games Hmm. like they would see them as these magical creatures especially vr i mean it's if you put a headset on a sort of like a 15 year old kid from the middle of iowa who's never seen a headset and then you can do the same thing with like a grandma in san francisco who's like hasn't played a video game ever they're they find this technology like mm. mind blowing and they're like, wow, the magic is is here. It <laughs> yeah. happened. Sci-fi. Like it's super, we're in the future, right? But then you get this, there's this lens you get in the community on games and on experiences on new hardware and all that stuff that's very, it's very jaded. Hmm. You know? And sure. so it's it's really cool when you're working on something that you know core gamers will love and then you can just pull one and say hey you play a lot of games mm-hmm. tell me if this is fun and they're just naturally trained to give you feedback about systems based games like that's to me that's something that like I don't do that in yeah. my practice and I'm a little jealous like that would be I would love to be able to just put a game in front of someone and say here it is tell me exactly you know how it feels but most of the stuff that I design it's it's designed for people who don't play and also for people who stopped playing. Yeah. And it's hard to find them mm,
1: to test. I end up true. I end
0: up looking really far out into the into the weeds for these people. Um and in that way, I think it's one of the reasons that we we find experimentation so hard. The kind of experimentation that you're doing, the pressures are about getting it done, getting it done on some kind of a timeline, you know, finding the, the fun in the system challenge, you know, your you know, your audience, I think Hmm. like, you know, way better (laughs) than me. A lot of the people I'm building for, maybe they're, they're 10 years old now and they'll be 20 when they play my game. Sure.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say that I know our audience, but I do have a general confidence in their ability, I guess. Like, um, we, definitely try not to handhold people and just yeah. be like you know you know what you're doing you're fine um but <laughs> but like with ftl for example like originally when we were making it we didn't think anyone would be interested roughly we just we were making this this hyper masochistic ridiculous suicide suicide run experiment and um and so to discover that so many people also found that interesting and acts just still like the game and our design sensibilities that definitely gave me confidence in like things that i think are good there will be a group of people who thinks yes. it's good like yeah. that that's where a lot of my personal design confidence comes from uh, more so than being like having a clear view of our audience i'm still some, somewhat um baffled by
0: have you met them
1: i mean i've met uh, of a large variety of them. And I think it's more diverse than I would have uh, in terms of by diverse, I mean like interest in games, diverse, like what are they getting out of FTL? There's those hardcore strategists who are like crunching the numbers. And then there's the people who just like the exploration and the feeling of seeing new things. Yeah. Um, And so it's, I think it's really interesting to me to see the variety of ways that people like to experience games and the way that they like to experience our games. So we definitely at least tried to with Into the Breach to make it, um, to allow people to sort of pick the experience that they want in the game, even yeah. though it's very constrained. So it's 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 relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like the fact that we're trying to build in your own choice for time length of the game and the the difficulty is has a pretty wide range so that if you just want a like um less stressful experience that it's possible but even i don't think we we're completely successful in this regard but we were def, definitely trying to do that and that was a, a reaction to seeing the types of people who were interested in FTA. yeah i
0: i was going to say that i think in some ways your games can be someone else's yoga You know, they can be thinking about problems that have nothing to do with game design Uh, while trying to survive in your systems and use those as a way to keep their brains occupied when one part of their brain needs some time off to just relax into a problem. I have heard
1: of a few people who use it in that way.
0: Yeah, it's actually really, it's kind of a gift. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the podcast. Is there anything that you're doing? Uh, talks you're going to be giving or places you're going to be appearing or things that you want to say to your fans that you'd like to close the podcast with?
1: Uh, sure, yeah. Um, Matt, my partner, is doing a uh, talk at GDC in the design track. Oh, great. It, um, sort of a post-mortem-ish um, and a sort of a deep discussion of all these things that got cut and, and the process that brought us to... Uh, the, the final version of the game, uh, I'm going to be talking at Reboot. Yeah. Um, And you can generally follow our studio at Subset Games uh, on Twitter, although honestly we're pretty quiet um, about things until we're certain that it's good, so I don't have anything necessarily to announce, but we will hopefully eventually have some more stuff to show people. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely a huge thank you to all our fans and all the developers who seem to resonate strongly with our games. It's just really amazing to hear how many people are inspired by our sort of design searches and, and how they use that in their own development. And that that sort of like like non non directly interactive like collectively experience things together growth is just really inspiring to me to hear about people who you know I've learned from their games and then they learn from my games and we never yeah. even met each other and that sort yeah. of stuff is like amazing to me.
0: Yeah, it truly is. It's what makes our community so exceptional. Thank you very much for being with us today, Justin.
1: Thank you. This was this was very enjoyable.
0: Okay, great. <laughs>
1: Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.
0: If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up.